Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Last week, we discussed the book Women, Race, and Class by the controversial intellectual and cultural icon Angela Davis. That book was published in 1981 and undertakes the telling of American history with Black women as the main focal point. This week's book was also published in 1981, and it takes on a similar project, looking at American history and culture through a Black feminist lens. It's called Ain't I a Woman, of course, referring to Sojourner Truth's famous speech, and it's by the brilliant and beloved author Bell Hooks. And I'm really, really excited to discuss this book today and super excited to have this conversation with my guests, Manuela Zonensign and Ashley Jackson Beal. Welcome, Manuela and Ashley. Hi. Hello. How are you? So great to have you guys here. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, well, let's dive in. And the first step will be to just introduce Bell Hooks. I'll share quickly that Bell Hooks is a pen name. She adopted her maternal great-grandmother's name because her great-grandmother was, quote, known for her snappy and bold tongue, which um, the granddaughter greatly admired. Bell Hooks' real name was Gloria Jean Watkins, and she was born on September 25th, 1952 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is a small town that was segregated at the time. This was two years before Brown v. Board, of course, um, in 1952. So it was a segregated town, like legally segregated. Her father worked as a janitor and her mother worked as a maid in the homes of white families. And Gloria was educated in racially segregated public schools. And she later wrote that this is where she experienced education as the practice of freedom. She describes the great adversity she faced when making the transition to an integrated school where teachers and students were predominantly white. She was an avid reader all throughout her childhood, and after graduating from high school, she attended Stanford University, where she graduated with a degree in English in 1973. And as I mentioned um, at the very beginning, astoundingly, it was during her time as an undergrad at Stanford that she wrote Ain't I a Woman. I cannot even believe <laughs> that that's true. <laughs> Thinking about myself at 19 and now that I have, I have very smart daughters, but I mean, it's just an incredible intellectual feat. Um, anyway, she got her MA in English from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1976. And then she spent several years teaching and writing and then completed her doctorate in literature from UC Santa Cruz and completed her dissertation on Toni Morrison. She's published more than 30 books, ranging in topics from black men, patriarchy and masculinity to self-help, personal memoirs and sexuality. And a prevalent theme in her most recent writing is community and communion. Um, and she's written three conventional books and four children's books where she suggests that communication and literacy are critical to developing healthy communities and relationships that are not marred by race, class, or gender inequalities. She has held positions as professor of African-American studies and English at Yale, associate professor of women's studies and American literature at Oberlin College, and distinguished lecturer of English literature at the City College of New York. She currently serves as a distinguished professor in residence in Appalachian Studies at Berea College in her home state of Kentucky. 
with that intro, Ashley and Manuela, can you talk about some of the major themes that you found the most compelling in this work? And Ashley, I'd love it if you would start us off. Yeah, so um, um, we just kind of broke it down by chapter. I want to start with chapter one. It's called Sexism and the Black Female Experience. It starts sort of from um, when colonizers first came to Africa um, before, I don't know, it wasn't clear, but it seems like before the intent to enslave, there was observation. And um, I, I found it interesting where she started, but I was truly intrigued by how she explored the psychology of slavery and how much the first chapter is still relevant today although it's about life of my ancestors hundreds of years ago. So this particular quote spoke to me, quote, white slaveholders were ambivalent in regards to their treatment of the black male. For while they exploited his masculinity, they institutionalized measures to keep that masculinity in check. Although it in no way diminishes the suffering and oppressions of enslaved black men, it's obvious that the two forces, sexism and racism, intensified and magnified the sufferings and oppressions of black women. This quote for me is the book. I mean, in a nutshell, what a way to start off. I mean, this quote to me describes why it's important to have intersectional feminism. Um, and it provoked a lot of questions for me, questions that I hadn't dared to ask myself actually um, the first one being, why does the black community seem more invested in alleviating and in general black men suffering more than black women? And why is that always the dominant narrative? And I, 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 I'm not sure why the black community is more invested other than it's just a reflection of the larger patriarchy that men are seeing more important. Men's narratives are more important and that's the reality of being a Black woman. We are largely important to society, but our experience is ignored, diminished, um, narrated by someone else. I mean, it's the, 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 this, this, this line about how Black masculinity has been preserved, I could say, Black femininity was almost, they almost tried to destroy it. So, I mean, in all the ways that they promoted Black men during slavery and kept their masculinity um, as a sort of distorted mirror image of how white men were living, I, it's, it's interesting to me that not even racism could keep white men from making sure all women were suppressed by men. Mm. So the next quote that I wanted to talk about, quote, white colonizers sought to suppress sexuality because their deep fear of sexual feelings, their belief that such feelings were sinful and their fear of eternal damnation. Colonial white men pl placed the responsibility for sexual lust onto women and consequently regarded them with the same suspicion and distrust that they associated with sexuality in general. I mean, this is it. Okay, so if the first one described the importance of intersectional feminism, this one gave me, this is the, the, the roots, the very roots of the patriarchy. 
are through religion, through repressed sexual feelings. You know, I, I feel like now more than ever after reading this book um, that I really need to look more into the roots of religion and how they directly affect um relationships between genders. And I, I thought this would be a great time to ask Manuela about how this manifests itself in Judaism, because I don't really know much. I know it seems woman centered actually, because the religion can only come through the mother. Am I correct? But what do you think about this? Is it similar? So the religion comes through the mother and my understanding of why that happened is because at some point in, you know, ancient history, the Romans attacked and raped all the women and killed all the, the Jewish men. And so the rabbis that survived said, okay, now it's going to pass through the women so that all the children that came from that rape became Jewish to continue their religion. Um, Amy and I have have emailed and talked a little bit about Judaism. And um, I feel very conflicted. Um, you know, it's the original Abrahamic religion and it started, it planted the seeds for so much of what you were just describing, Ashley, uh, that idea um, of sin and, you know, that men are the more powerful, that, you know, they're the ones that can connect with God and have the right to practice the religion and to lead tribes and lead families. I think Judaism's saving grace is the focus on interpretation and allowing all Jewish people access to the texts and encouraging all Jewish people to ask questions about those texts. And so that opens up the possibility that we can reimagine how the religion can be interpreted and manifested and lived going forward. And so we don't have to assume and take for granted the way things have been done before. So I, I see hope in, uh, in Judaism in that way. I love that. Well, thank you for that. Um, because I think about, I mean, you just said a lot, but I was thinking mostly about which part of this is cultural versus religion. And I guess there's like, you know, depending on how a religion has affected a culture, that line is blurred. And I think that's where we are now as black people. So much of our cultural traditions come out of religion because it's basically the only thing we were allowed to independently do by people that enslaved us. So, so much of the culture is tied to religion. I'll go to the next quote. Enslaved Black men were stripped of their patriarchal status that had characterized their social situation in Africa, but they were not stripped of their masculinity. Despite all popular arguments that claim Black men were figuratively castrated throughout the history of slavery in America, Black men were allowed to maintain some semblance of their societal, societally defined masculine role. In colonial times, as in contemporary times, masculinity denoted possessing the attributes of strength, virality, vigor, and physical prowess. It was precisely the masculinity of the African male that the white slaver sought to exploit. I mean, this, you know, 
immediately I thought about women because that's how my mind worked. I thought that it was interesting that as black women, we were forced into this European definition of femininity, and then it was made impossible to truly attain. It seems like maybe Mm -hmm. one of the cruelest ways to program people mentally, to give them a, 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 you know, a status um, that they can never escape, you know? So there was a caste system within a caste system in um, American chattel slavery because everything was for the sake, they, they understood that they needed the men's labor the most. They needed everybody's labor, but they needed men's labor the most. And so they understood that masculinity requires someone to lord over that masculinity is almost defined in this text as your relationship to another gender. Um, Last quote for this chapter I wrote, or Bell wrote, "Um, the brutal cheap treatment of enslaved black women by white men exposed the depths of male hatred on the woman and a woman's body. Such treatment was a direct consequence of misogynist attitudes toward women that prevailed in colonial American society. In fundamentalist Christian teaching, woman was portrayed as an evil sexual temptress, the bringer of sin into the world. Sexual lust originated with her and men were merely the victims of her wanton power. I'll stop there. Um, So this one was, you know, I always think about religion and religious dogma and how that, um, is conflated with misogyny in a way that like we just cannot escape and we will always have to address. Um, So I thought something like, how can something as deeply rooted as misogyny with origins in religious dogma ever truly change? Like if if this is truly the origin of misogyny, um, you know, something that has been ingrained in our society and, all cultures across the world because of colonialization, you know, if, if misogyny is so entrenched in organized religion, how can we ever make, make that different? I don't know. Um, I just wanted to mention really quickly to this term misogynoir, um, because that is the term that it's misogyny directed towards black women where race and gender both play roles in the bias. The term was coined by a queer black feminist named Moya Bailey. She's very interesting. She is amazing writing. Um, and she termed, she coined this term to address misogyny directed toward black women in American visual and popular culture. The thing that makes me sad about this term is that it's a necessary term um, that that it is a term, I think, that is directed completely at white feminists to because the term intersectional feminism hasn't garnered enough attention or respect um, for what black women go through specifically. I think this term was coined so that people can't say we're just experiencing misogyny. It's a level deeper when you're a black woman there is a double jeopardy, a double, um, a double-edged sword there of misogyny and racism. And we're on the ends of both. Chapter two, continued devaluation of black womanhood. I'm just going to share like the quote of this. 
The success of sexist, racist conditioning of American people toward black women as creatures of little worth or value is evident when politically conscious white feminists minimize sexist oppression of black women. This stereotype still pervades society today that black women are sexual savages, um, non-human, um, and this was all necessary because in slavery, a slave couldn't be raped. There was no real, all of the crimes you could commit against a white person, it wasn't considered a crime against black people. And it was, and, and so then it was necessary, certainly in their colonial Judeo-Christian minds to make us less than human in order to inflict certain things upon us. However, the stereotype has a life of its own now that black women are not victims of sexist oppression, that um, black women, you know, have less worth or less value than pretty much, you know, every other traditional member of sexist society. So if you put, if you ranked white men, then white women, then black men, then black women, like we're on the lowest rung of the totem pole in terms of value and worth or how that is expressed in society, our society. Um, and I thought about this specifically because, um, oh, sorry, let me share the last line of this quote because I think I skipped that. White women and men justified the sexual exploitation of enslaved black women by arguing that they were the initiators of sexual relationships with men. From such thinking emerged the stereotype of black women as sexual savages and in sexist terms, a sexual savage is a non-human and an animal that cannot be raped. Okay. So I was thinking about all the, the notions of rape and consent and adulteration of black women, which is really a problem. And it all stems from this necessary notion so that white men felt okay about raping women um, and white women could also feel okay with it was this notion that black women somehow wanted it. Somehow these enslaved black women wanted this sexual interaction, no matter how young they were, no matter how resistant, somehow just by virtue of their blackness, they were sexual savages who could not technically be raped. Um, she said something interesting in another portion that I won't go into, but she essentially said that this man observed white women looking down at black women being beaten and, you know, that they must be thinking if we try to stop this, it could be us next. And because for a long period of history, it was, you know, the rapes and, and physical, um, you know, punishment and domestic violence was very commonplace. Um, I just thought about this, like how an oppressed group can be an active participant in oppression because they're just sort of like, just not us. Like, mm -hmm. if you have to do this to someone, just don't do it to me. Um, and I'm wondering what you guys think about how that has affected how black and white women interact to this day, um, because these stereotypes are still prevalent about black women being over sexualized. Um, black women and a, and a white woman can do the same dance, but a black woman is seen as inappropriate and over-sexual. Um, so I don't know, like, do white women still benefit from this juxtaposition? Is that something you can comment on? It's, I, I have a ton of thoughts going through my head as, as you're talking. Um, 
And some of it has to do with what you said earlier about the fact that isms are not logical. And I'm a really, really logical person to a fault, like to being naive about things. So I, um, I, I recognize that what I'm going to say maybe isn't like broadly applicable to society or to white women, but the example you just gave from the book about, you know, white women looking down and seeing black women being beaten and thinking to themselves, Oh my God, I could just, I could drop down to that level, to that mud sill, you know? And so let me, at least I'm not at the top, but I'm not at the bottom. So I'm at least going to, you know, maintain the status quo because this isn't that bad. And I look at that situation and I would think to myself, Oh my God, a, that's terrible what's happening down there, but B, it could happen to me. And the only way to make sure that it can happen is to break down that hierarchy. Okay, moving right along. Chapter three, the imperialism of patriarchy. Um, I'm just going to share one brilliant quote from this. Um because the whole chapter is so like, I think you could teach a course on each sentence of the chapter, but I'll just share this. When the contemporary movement toward feminism began, there was little discussion of the impact of sexism on the social status of black women. The upper and middle-class white women who were at the forefront of the movement made no effort to emphasize that patriarchal power, the power men use to dominate women is not just the privilege of upper and middle-class white men, but the privilege of all men in our society, regardless of class and race. White feminists so focus on the disparity between white male, white female economic status as an indication of the negative impact of sexism that they drew no attention to the fact that poor and lower class men are able to oppress and brutalize women as any other group of men in American society. So I love this quote because this is still the case today, but I don't understand why. We have so much understanding of how, you know, the impact on your life of, you know, the layered effects of gender, race, class, socioeconomic status, how it impacts people. We have all this data, we have studies, we have everything, but this is still like nothing has changed. I mean, middle-class and upper-class white women are still leading most of the feminist narratives and the feminist movements, as it were. And in general, like, black women's issues have never really been incorporated in a real way by mainstream white feminists. And I'm wondering, do white women actually know all of this and just not care? Do they think by solving their own issues, the issues of all women will be solved? Like, I don't know where the thinking is. So I'm going to turn this over to you two because I was just left with all questions on this. I'm, my only commentary is how is this still the same? And, and what is the thinking here? I uh, don't know why it's the same. And I don't know what um, white middle and upper class women uh, I don't know what the right answer is, but yes, 100%, I agree. Um, and so relating to your point um, around, you know, uh, feminism and how it's been really focused on white women, um, you know, something that was really kind of sad to me was learning that the heroes that we, at least as white women, 
were raised by popular American culture to admire and emulate were in fact deeply flawed. And Bell Hooks writes, quote, discrimination against Afro-American women reformers was the rule rather than the exception within the women's rights movement from the 1830s to 1920. Although white feminists, Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, and some others encouraged black women to join the struggle against sexism during the 19th century, antebellum reformers who were involved with women's abolitionist groups, as well as women's rights organizations, actively discriminated against black women. And for me, that just raises a lot more tough questions, you know. Who are these? Who are the heroes that we can turn to? Who are the the figures in history that that we can hold up? And it does also, of course, raise a lot of um, doubt and questions around the American dream. And that's something that um, you know, Bell Hooks talks a lot about in Chapter Four. Um, and as, as you said, Ashley, just every sentence is so hard hitting. Um, and yeah, deserves its own conversation and yet is also so interwoven to everything else that she, she talks about. So this last chapter, um, chapter five, black women and feminism, um, again, so many important quotes. Um, I think for me, what was most impressive, what most impressed me and pressed my, in my mind was learning more about sojourner truth and um you know just wanting to draw a little bit of attention uh to what she had to overcome and and how incredible she seems to have been so hooks writes of the second annual convention of the women's rights movement in akron ohio in 1852 quote Sojourner endured their protests and became one of the first feminists to call their attention to the lot of the black slave woman who, compelled by circumstance to labor alongside black men, was a living embodiment of the truth that women could be the work equals of men, end quote. And I think that's incredible. If there's ever uh, an example, right, that start that could start a conversation and get people to say, OK, a woman can do it, too. You know, it's and, and to be able to work alongside men in your day job and to not have your abilities questioned by others. I think we can all thank Pastor Truth. Fantastic, Manuela. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been such a great discussion. And as we close out, I'm just wondering if you could share a major theme or a takeaway that you'll remember or want listeners to remember from this book. Sure. I'll, um, I'll, I'll go first and let Ashley have the last word. So I, as Ashley has mentioned, am also shocked by how much of what Bell Hooks describes in her book written in 1971, 40, oh my God, 50 years ago, still persists today. And she talks about on um, page 91, she talks about how domestic labor was not treated as real work. And that's a really big one for me as a new mom. The fact that ra- that the work of raising children, whether you're a domestic worker or a, a parent, that is work and that it's valuable work. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Manuela. Do you have something, Ashley, that you want to leave as a takeaway? I have so much to say, but I'll keep it very succinct. Um, My biggest takeaway is that so much is still the same for Black women. I mean, we've had all these sexual revolutions. We've had, you know, race revolutions that have happened in the last couple of years. So I see what feminists are capable of. I see what the Black community is capable of in terms of making movement. But nobody is trying to make movement for Black women. Um, So, you know, besides Black women, and actually Black women's efforts are largely, you know, because of the way our society is structured, focused on helping Black men. Um, As a matter of fact, the women that started Black Lives Matter are women, and they're women, Black women, um, queer Black women. And they started an organization that has all this traction that started because Black men were being killed. So this is the, the, the legacy of what the patriarchy has done to our community. And I guess my biggest takeaway is that Um, As Black women, we have to assert ourselves more. I mean, we have been seen and stereotyped as aggressive and masculine, but there are parts of that we need to embrace because you know what? Men rule the world. So if someone sees you as masculine, perhaps it's some sort of a compliment in a way. Um, And I think we need to truly be aggressive and truly assert ourselves um, in a way that makes us impossible to ignore um, in a way that puts us first. And I, I really hope that I see these prolific, influential Black women start to put Black women's issues at the helm of the Black community. Um, um, and we have to assert ourselves as Black women. Um, that's my takeaway. Thanks, Ashley. Well, thank you again to both of you. That was such a rich discussion. And I so enjoyed reading this book. Um, on your recommendation, Ashley, and having this conversation and listening to you as friends have this conversation with each other. That was beautiful. So thanks again so much for being here today. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. This was a great 